All right, good morning. Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church, and we will be in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, finishing up uh, what we have referred to as the eulogy of blessing that uh, Paul has for God, and it has a, a lot of foundational theology in it that's really helpful for us, and it's helpful for our understanding of the book of Ephesians, which is why it's also our weekly congregational confession. I just want to remind you, it was a 202-word sentence, so we're going to be breaking in on the sentence. We've added punctuation for the sake of moderns, I guess, and so uh, we're going to break in on a part that's actually summative, uh, so we'll see that in just a moment, but before we get to that, I want to ask you a question. Um, what gives you the most confidence to take a risk of some kind? Like, we all have different personalities. Uh, there's those of us who, you don't need any confidence at all uh, to take a risk. All you need is opportunity, right? As somebody say, hey, hey, I dare you, uh, and you'll do it. Uh, but for, for most people, uh, that, that's not the case. There's a number of things that have to be in place before they will do something. They will take a risk of some kind or put themselves out there in any kind of way, which is interesting. Uh, what, would you, what would you guess, and you get to speak this out loud, what would you guess is my, me on the risk meter? Joe says no, low risk. Any other thoughts? Everybody think I'm a low risker? Jennifer. High risk, super risky, nuclear at time. No, she didn't say that. It's weird, I'm, I'm a little bit of both, actually. On a lot of things, I'm extremely no risk whatsoever. I, I wanna make sure everything's gonna be okay. I, I actually don't like causing problems because I end up having to clean up after them uh, because when I do overshoot, it is nuclear oftentimes. And so, um, Susan, like I don't, we have an entrance and exit strategy for everything we do. The picnic today, it's already mapped out. It's known by the people who need to know. Uh, um, but in other circumstances, other situations, like getting up in front of people, confronting those kind of things, I, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm a lot more risky in that regard. Um, and so it's, I'm a weird mix. Um, and so, but, but it's something that we all wrestle with, right? Most of the time, there's just things we won't do why? What's the primary thing that we fear the most in terms of risk? Failure. failure, but even more important, what failure makes us look like, right? I don't want people to know I'm stupid. Notice what I just said. I, I, I don't want people to think I'm stupid. I don't, I don't want people to think I can't do things. And so we, there's a lot of things that we don't do because we are so afraid of what other people think of us and we are not primarily defined by what Christ thinks of us. And think about how it would affect us, how it would change things for us. If what's being said in Ephesians, this in Christness, that it, you were defined by the fact that you are redeemed, think about the freedoms you would have to share and to love and to forgive and to express and to take risks uh, on things that really do matter and would allow you the opportunity to taste and see that the Lord is good. See, so often I think what we're robbing ourselves of is actually being able to see just how good God really is. And so, uh, this morning, what, the key truth that I want us to walk away with is that God is worthy to be blessed. Remember, that's the whole part of this blessing eulogy, but God is worthy to be blessed because he has blessed us in Christ to serve his redemptive missional purpose in the world with our inheritance sealed in the Holy Spirit. That means... 
there's nothing for you to risk of great importance. The greatest thing that you would fear losing, the greatest thing that could possibly change your eternity is actually sealed in the Holy Spirit, which sets you free for the life of the world to display to the praise of the glory of God. Amen? All right, so let's step into the text. If you would, turn to Ephesians 1, 11 through 12, and let's hear the word of the Lord. In him, meaning Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, might, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, this is important that we understand who's being talked to. So who, uh, what was the, the identity of the primary audience of Ephesians? Gentile or Jew? They're primarily Gentile. And we have to be careful because Paul switches between we and you an awful lot in this early section. And so it's important that we keep up with who he's talking about where. And there's oftentimes he says we and he means the Jews. And there's oftentimes he says we and he means all of them together. Do remember that a critical aspect of Ephesians is the declaration of peace. Shalom, and we're going to see that when we get to Ephesians 2, 11 through 16, that the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down, that there is now one person in Christ, both Jew and Gentile together, and they are the bride of Christ together, the people of God, and so there's no separation anymore, right? So whatever it was that the Jews had that was unique and whatever it was that the Gentiles didn't have has been taken away. But what he's saying here is that the Jews were redeemed for a purpose. He's saying we who uh, first hoped in Christ were predestined. That means they were a chosen people, but they were chosen for something, right? And so what we notice is they were chosen for the praise of God's glory. It's interesting uh, that they had relationship before they had law. They had relationship before they had religious practices. They had relationship with God long before even creation. That in his will, which means he, his will has always been redemptive. He doesn't have a bunch of different wills for this world. He only has one, and that's to redeem it, right? Now, is judgment part of that? Yes, unfortunately it is. But, but the reason that he chose them, and we know this from Old Testament passages, right? Did he choose them because they were awesome? They were the mightiest men in all the earth. They, they could sing better than anybody. They could clap on 16th notes. Which, if that's how you get in, then some of us are in trouble. Uh, no, they, in fact, they were bedraggled people who didn't exist before he formed them, you understand. He's the one that draws the barriers of the nations and decides who they are. It's not as if it was ubiquitous. He chose them. In fact, they rise from a man named Abram, who he picked himself, but for a purpose. If you remember the Abrahamic covenant, what's the purpose of the Abrahamic covenant? That, that all the nations would be blessed, right? That every tongue, tribe, and nation, this is actually the vision that we see, the, the beatific vision of the goal of all of history in Revelation 7. When every tongue, tribe, and nation is singing together, I wonder what the style will be like. I don't know. I hope it'll be awesome, right? And so 
Uh, interestingly, what we have is a people being chosen to display the glory of God. So they're chosen for the life of the world. And we know this also from the Old Testament because they are to be a priesthood to the nations. So what do priests do? What's their primary purpose? Pronouncing judgment and telling people they're wrong? No, what's their primary purpose? Offer forgiveness. Offer the means of grace so that those who are out would find their way in. So that those who live under the tyranny of sin and death would taste and see life abundant. That is their purpose. That's what priests ought do. Now, are there times they have to point out the things that are wrong? As part of that, yes, they do, especially if it's leading you which direction in terms of God. If it's leading you away from him, I'm not loving you if I don't say something. It is an unloving, ungracious, and unmerciful act to stand back and go, well, that's your business. It's a cowardly thing, but it limits risk now, doesn't it? And so the Jews were chosen to display God's glory in a unique way, not in the law, not in their worship, not in anything else primarily. Those, 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 that was not the primary thing they were to do. Those things were adjuncts to that. See, the law allowed them to display their relationship and to love their neighbor. Their worship allowed them to see you remember, we've talked about this before, how sensory their worship would have been. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a slaughterhouse, but the smell is, is, is crazy. Um, uh, if you've ever been to Chicago, well, that was back in the like, 1800s. So you, you, you know what I'm talking about. That's Upton Sinclair days. Uh, but um, but it, it's, it is a distinct smell, and it leaves a taste in your mouth. Now think about how powerful that is in terms of this is your sin. This is the cost of your sin, the taste of blood in your mouth. And so all of those things were actually to serve the purpose to point somewhere, not as the goal in and of themselves. And so as priests, they were to invite people in and instruct people in the person of God and the law of God so that they could relate Right? And know that they are forgiven and blessed, which blessed means, for those of you who've talked about this recently, uh, and we've talked about this quite a bit, is the presence of the Lord, not even material blessing. Paul, who's writing this, is in prison. Would he say he's blessed? He actually does. And he's going to tell us that in chapter 3. And so, what Paul's establishing is beginning and end. Yes, from the beginning, God chose the Jews, first. He chose them first, but it was for a purpose. And he'll turn in just a moment and help the Gentiles understand, but that doesn't change anything for you. And this idea of displaying the glory of God, I want to remind us, is not just for Jews either, by the way. Remember, we went through First and Second Peter recently, and Peter reminds us all in chapter 2, verses 4 through 13, that we are what? What are we now? We are a priesthood to all the nations. And we have a responsibility to offer and teach and, and speak about the forgiveness and love of God to our neighbors. We are not only to speak of it, but we're to live it out in such a way that it, it stands out to them. Uh, uh, we had a joint meeting this morning, which is the, the elders and the deacons together. And one of the things we were talking about was radical forgiveness. And forgiveness is, is something, the more that I go... 
uh, as a pastor, so much stands or falls right there. An unforgiving heart can't display any of the other fruits of the Spirit in any way, shape, or form that matter. Right? I can be sweet to you about being unforgiving, but how does that help? You know, like I can be like, hey, I just really don't forgive you, but have a good day. Is that, is that okay? No, it's not okay. And so, so, so much stands or falls on the forgiveness issue. Remember Peter, because he, he was always concerned to try to kind of figure some things out. He's like, hey, how many times we got to forgive this guy? You remember Jesus' answer? Basically, he hits him with an infinity, but he gives it seven times 70. And what's interesting to me is so often when we talk about forgiveness, so often the response, when I'm talking to people about forgiveness, they're like, yeah, but. Yeah, but what about over here in 1 Corinthians 5 where you're not even supposed to eat with these people? Yeah, but that doesn't mean you didn't offer them forgiveness. That means they rejected it and they continue in sin in such a way that it's unhealthy for you to act like nothing is wrong. That's different, isn't it? And so forgiveness is one of those things that, and we're going to hear this in chapter 2, he loved us when we were still his enemies. So from his side, forgiveness was already before the foundation of the world pronounced. I don't know how to make that math work either, but I'm glad it's true. And so here we see an example of us being called to be a priesthood just as the people of God have always been called to be a priesthood, to display to the praise of God's glory for the life of the world, to offer up the gospel, and to do so in such a way that the world can't help but say, that can't be found anywhere but in Christ, and in Christ alone, by faith alone, through God's grace alone. So F.F. Bruce, as he speaks of this passage, says, and this is such a great quote, he says, God is honored God is honored in the presence of human beings and angelic powers when men and women, redeemed from sin, live in accordance with his will and display, listen, the family likeness which stamps them as children. So what's the family likeness? got to be one Christian here, just law of averages it is the South after all. What's the likeness? Christ himself. In Christ, it's been said over and over and over again, so the family likeness is that we would look more like Christ. Well, how did Christ deal with people? How forgiving was he? Do remember the story when he's at the Pharisee's house, right? And the woman shows up Known for her sin, we conjecture that it was probably something or other, but I think the Bible doesn't tell us because that means any of us could step into that story. But she was known for her sin, which none of us like to be known for, by the way. How many of you are like, man, I love being known for my mistakes? You ought to try public speaking. It's really awesome. Uh, <laughs> it'll, it'll help you. Uh, and so she's known for her mistakes, she has the audacity as a woman in that culture to crash the party, for which, by law, she could have been killed without any questions asked. Yet she shows up, and you remember what she does? 
She is so thankful for the forgiveness that she has received that she's no longer known for her sin. She is known for being forgiven and forgiving. Now, how do I know that? Well, after she anoints the feet of Jesus, and Simon the Pharisee is sitting there thinking to himself, man, if he knew what kind of woman she was, he wouldn't let her get near him. You remember Jesus does that interesting thing where he tells him his thoughts as a true prophet. He says, Simon, Simon, I've got something to say to you. Simon's like, well, say it, bro. My translation. And so, and so he says, to, to whom much has been forgiven loves much. You, I came in your house. You didn't even offer me the base hospitality that is true of this culture. You didn't offer me a kiss. You didn't wash my feet. You just sat in judgment. Now, what's interesting is, is he condemning Simon to hell or what's he doing? What's he offering him? The gospel. He's showing him, showing him what it looks like, how he, Simon, so judgmental in heart, could be saved. And so, if we're going to look like Jesus, how does Jesus feel about those at the margins? his take on them? Well, Matthew 25 says there's a lot that stands or falls based on how we treat those at the margins, right? In fact, it all stands or falls as an outworking of who we are by how we treat those who are supposedly automatically out, who don't display the evidences of blessing that we have deemed in this world. Health, wealth, prosperity, not being in jail, those kinds of things. But Jesus says, no, I was in all of those places. And that which you've done to the least of these, you have done it unto me. So if we're going to bear the family likeness, how will we treat those who maybe don't look like us, who maybe don't vote like us, who maybe don't think like we do, who maybe don't drink like we do, who maybe do things that we don't do, who maybe don't have what we have, how will we treat them? Hopefully we would treat them with great grace and mercy. Instead of looking first at, well, see, if you hadn't made some of those decisions, partner, you wouldn't be in that situation. Is that what Jesus meant? We do the least of these, we go and make sure they know how messed up they really are and how much they deserve what they got or don't have? No, 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 to bear the family likeness, We've got to be a really forgiving people, forgiving with each other as much as with outside, because sometimes I think we struggle more with forgiving inside the church than we do sometimes outside the church. Same thing with family. We struggle there too, don't we? And in the same way, we also ought to be loving people at the margins, radical in these ways. I, I get it. This makes us uncomfortable. I, I just, I just want to go home and, and you know, deadhead some flowers in my garden and be left alone for the rest of the day. That may not be the way it goes. That may not be what is, what is necessary. So, so for us to bear the family likeness means we will probably be a bit harried by the things of the world like Jesus was, that we will be grieved by what we see, that we will want to see it change and we'll use the means of grace just as he did, right? Here's Jesus, and he takes so much time to pray. Jesus! What does that mean for us? We, we too ought 
to use the means of grace? Did he, did he deny worship? Was he like, man, I already know this story. I don't, I don't need to go. I don't need to listen to this. No, he, he went. He participated. He was part of community. He lived life with people. He gave of himself. So if we're going to be a priest of the believers, we ought to look a lot like Jesus, our high priest. Amen? All right, so what are some ways in which you are living to the praise of God's glory for the life of the world? Again, this is not the time for false humility. Well, you know, if I go naming stuff, I mean, <laughs> isn't that pride? No, I don't want to be prideful, but I'm awesome. No, we, we should be able to point to things that say and say, I am. I'm intentional in doing these things for the life of the world because I care about my neighbors. I care about those in my spheres of influence. You're not declaring that you have the ability to change it in and of yourself. It's not that you are unique. It's that God has chosen you and placed you in the circumstances that you're in so that those around you could bear witness to his glory, his father's glory. And so how are you living in the grain of that. And let me say this one more time, and I feel like it's worth saying every single time. I am not in any way, shape, or form saying you should add one wit's worth of anything to your life. What I am saying is you need to change how you view much of what you already have. And how can you leverage where you already are in some ways, right? And much of this is going to be long-term and very every day. Very much every day. I mean, in fact, remember, God is very patient. He takes long periods of time to work out things of reconciliation. Sometimes it takes years to see any fruit from it. But we, we like fast fruit. It's like we like fast food, and we like things to be really amazing and stirring. Do remember, when we get to new heavens, new earth, as the bride descends clothed in the righteousness of you, us, the saints, most of what's going to be on there, we're going to say, I had no idea. In fact, remember, that's what the, those who actually loved the least of these, they said, Jesus, we didn't know it was you. We were just doing what we knew was right, what was with the grain of who you are. But we didn't know we were serving you, the very king of the universe. And the other folks are like, man, if I'd have known it was you, I'd have been there, man. I knew I'd have got something out of it. I'd have done it. Right? Now, how are you living out God's redemptive missional purpose for which he chose you? We've got we to think about that. We need to cultivate that. Again, if you have questions about that, if you're just not real sure, you're thinking, all right, Cameron said, I don't have to add anything. I like that. That's good because I don't have another section of anything to add anything. But you're still yet confused on, but how do I leverage what I have? Let's talk about that. Let us be of assistance to you. Talk to somebody about it. Get in a small group. Form a small group. I don't care. Figure out a way to have these discussions in a tangible way. Because I get it. It's a risk, isn't it? Uh, Matt Peach, we had dinner with the Peaches last night, and he was talking about, he serves at First Care Women's Clinic, and I, I hate to tell his story, you ought to hear him tell it, but he's had an amazing set of opportunities to share the gospel with people, and he said he's shared more in six months, right, than he has in his whole life. 
And, and it's not easy because it's not like these people have scheduled to see him. He gets the great joy of walking out into a waiting room and saying to somebody, hey, you want to go have a real serious talk that's not there to have a serious talk. And they're not there for a good reason either. And the Lord has, has, has used it, and, and there's still some, it's, it's still long in coming, this fruit. But it's already bearing fruit in his life and been a great joy to him. But it's risk, right? I, as he's talking about it, I, I was mortified. I'm so glad I, I get to stand in front of people and just talk and be judged instead of having to do that. That would be horrible, in my opinion. So God bless you, Matt. <laughs> Uh, and, and others of you have circumstances like that where it's not anything new you need to do. It's, it's just how, how will you leverage? And the first thing to do, by the way, is pray. Ask the Lord to show you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. How you might leverage what you already have, either a relationship at work or a relationship with a neighbor or with your family or with your spouse or whoever to broker uh, the display of God's glory in the world. All right, let's turn back to the text and see what Paul has to say to the Gentiles. Listen to what he says. He says, in him, Christ again, you also. That's how we know he's talking to someone different. He says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your, our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Did you see what he did there? He's talking about you, and then he pulls in and says we. So he says you, just because you weren't born with law and you didn't have the covenant and you didn't have the signs of the covenant and you didn't have all the right worship stuff going for you, that didn't mean you were out. In fact, the, those who had heard this first because of the display of glory in their lives you heard the word of truth, and you are the fruit of that because you believed, and you've now come into the very kingdom of God. You are part of the people of God. And then he goes on to say, and this is, these words are so sweet to us, and we, we do. We struggle with assurance, don't we? And he says, how you began is inconsequential. Who you were matters not. It matters who you now are in Christ, and that reality can never change. It, it's sealed. It is kept for you in the Holy Spirit. The Jews don't get something extra that you don't, right? Which is one of the beautiful parts of Galatians, was the Galatians are wrestling with, well, shouldn't we do all the Jewish stuff? No, you don't have to. Same thing in Colossians. Shouldn't we keep the Passover? Shouldn't we do these other things to learn about what it means to be a Christian? He says, no, you're in Christ. If you want to do those things for an educational purpose, that's a different matter, but you don't have to do any of that. What you have to do is grow in Christ. What you have to do is be a priesthood as you were fashioned. What you have to do is display the glory of God. Which, by the way, if you remember from John 15... Christ's promises will happen if we do what? Abide. What does that mean? Rest. In him, his finished work. Wait a minute. What about, what about making sure I read my Bible every day? Doesn't say that. It'd be good for you to read your Bible on a regular basis so you understand what abiding is and who you're doing it in and what it ought to look like. 
But what John 15 tells us is you are guaranteed to bear fruit because God has willed it to be so. I often live as if that's not true. I'm sure many of you struggle with that as well. But what great news it is that it, our abiding in Christ will bear fruit in those around us. That in and of itself will display glory. People witnessing us wrestling with the things of the world and how to make the world a better place and how to make our homes a better place and how to make our neighborhoods a better place and how to make our workplaces a better place, that will, that will be meaningful to them. To show any sort of care for someone else, any sort of acknowledgement of their circumstance, just remembering someone's name correctly sometimes means an awful lot. Certainly remembering anything they're going through, certainly remembering their birthday, which I'm absolutely horrible at. Uh, I, I should probably hire somebody specifically just to help me keep up with birthdays. But we have ways in which we can display the glory of God to the world around us that will be fanned into flame because we rest in who we are in Christ. Like Josh said, too often, day starts new. It's not mercies that are new every morning for us, it's merits. What do I got to do today to prove I'm yet again worthy? To this person, to my wife, or to my husband, to my children, to my coworkers, to my church family, right? How, how do I need to prove yet again today? Think of how exhausting that is. How many of you are so tired of feeling like every day You've got to prove, yet again, your worth. It's exhausting because it's, it's, it doesn't depend on us. We're not God. It depends maybe on the mood of the person across from you. It depends on the weather. It depends on any number of things that are fully out of your control. And so being in Christ sets us free from all that laboring Come all you who are heavy laden and burdened and I'll give you rest. Abide in me, says Christ. And so what they're being told is that can never be taken from any of us. And if that is not a full stop for you, if there's a yeah but, we need to talk. We need to talk about that. You don't need to leave it there. Yeah, but you don't know. Yeah, but I don't know. Remember, we talked about this last week. If, if you only love that which you fully understand, then you love nothing. If you only obey that which you understand fully, you will obey nothing. Right? Paige Sliman does real estate. If I had to understand every jot and tittle of what you have to fill out to buy a house, I would own no home ever. Right? And it's constantly changing. So think of all of the ways in which this sets us free to know that we are sealed in the power of the Holy Spirit and what we are is kept for us untarnished by how you live. I know that's interesting because you, you think, wait, did you just give us a license to sin? No, I just hopefully gave you a license to worship in freedom and truth. Hopefully you have a license to actually risk glorifying God in ways that you've been afraid of before because you're worried about what people are gonna think about you. Listen, God's wired you a certain way. Susan is not going to be verbose about it. But I will tell you, she has shared the gospel with more of our neighbors than I have. 
And part of it is they see me coming, right? And wait, let me explain. You think you know. It's not what you think. But once they hear I'm a pastor, everybody tightens up. And if I do something out of character with what they think a pastor ought to be, then it gets real weird. And so it's a super awkward exchange. I almost want to just say, hey, let's, and Matt Chandler used to do this with his neighbors. He'd be like, all right, hey, let's go ahead and do this. All right, I'm a pastor. How does that make this weird? And what can we do about it? Um, so I haven't done that yet, uh, but I'm thinking about it. And so it's not about you going against the grain of your personality. Please don't hear this as now you who are introverted must go and radically become extroverts. No, let leverage what you have where you have according to the gifts and the circumstances that the Lord has sovereignly given and placed you in, knowing that you are filled with the Holy Spirit, knowing that as he told us earlier in this run-on sentence, we have been granted every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There is nothing we don't have access to that we need. What would it look like if we believed that? And so as he promises the Spirit to us, promises us that we are sealed in him, that allows us, and notice the repetition of this, and that is to the praise of the glory of God. That helps to display. So when we walk in a Holy Spirit-filled confidence of who we are in Christ, then that allows the glory of God to be displayed in us in some pretty amazing ways for the life of the world. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says about the Holy Spirit. This is a great quote. And I want you to remember some of the things that we talked about about the Holy Spirit from from John as we were laying a, a firm foundation as to who the Holy Spirit is. He says, the Holy Spirit, in his indwelling presence, his influences and fruits is the sum of all grace, holiness, comfort, and joy. Or, in one word, of all the spiritual good Christ purchased for humanity in this world. And is also the sum of all perfection, glory, and eternal joy that he purchased for them in another world. The Holy Spirit is the subject matter of the promises, both of the eternal covenant of redemption and also the covenant of grace. Now, I picked Edwards because he's good for a 200-word run-on sentence himself. (laughs) And he had punctuation and used it so the sentence wouldn't die. Um, But what he's saying here is very important. He's saying that you being indwelt by the Spirit has both a now and a not yet reality. In the now, it allows us to display God's glory in ways that are utterly impossible without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit only comes when we are in union with Christ. They're not two separate things. I know some of you may be thinking, wait, isn't it Jesus who's the sum? Yes. Isn't it the Holy Spirit who's the sum displayed? Yes. Aren't that the Trinity? Yeah. Notice the Trinitarian formula here in this 202-word eulogy blessing that Paul has. And so what we have is a great gift that affects how we can live now. The question is, are we accessing? Now, is there a magic formula to get the Spirit to move? It's actually a trick question. Jonathan seems to be saying yes. Yeah, the magic formula is ask. 
That's it. That's the magic formula. You ask, and the Spirit will respond, right? I need guidance. Remember, that's the main, the main thing that, that the Spirit does is glorify Christ in everything, right? So if you need guidance, which often we need, right, how do I live out what's being talked about here this morning? Ask, and the Spirit will respond. But that means you've got to listen. That means you've got to take time and be patient and let the Lord unfold. And he uses lots of different means by which he'll answer you. It always has to be in accord with God's word, right? Um, and so that's really, that's a bank of the river. But he'll use sometimes other people and wise counsel that is in accord with his word. He'll use his word. He'll use sometimes impressions that are in accord with his word, right? And so there's lots of ways in which the spirit moves and acts, and not, it's not always the same twice. I've had some presbycostal moments. And I can't conjure them up. Moments where it was clear something was happening and I wasn't just having a nervous breakdown. And I wish it was like that a lot because then it'd be easier to kind of kind of pick out what is and what isn't. But that means we're, we're not doing the hard work of becoming. We just want to be. And so... What we have is such a great gift, and we have to ask, how is our lives being affected by knowing that our salvation and inheritance is in Christ as a child of God has been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit? Does your assurance have any impact on how you live day in and day out? I'm going to tell you it does whether you acknowledge it or not. It's either lack of assurance that is driving you passively or aggressively, and it, can, and it can also be assurance that is having a passive and aggressive impact on you, but you need to be paying attention to which one it is. You need to be cultivating, right, the assurance that is yours in Christ. It doesn't mean that you're getting more assurance. It's you're coming to understand the greatness and grandness of your assurance. And so your life is being affected by what you think about this. And then what risks does this afford you to take for the glory of God. Because powerful things can happen. And I think I've told you all before, I, don't, I, I really don't like messing with people in public. As much as you may think I might like to. And I'm afraid that if I do kind of get a taste for it, it's going to be terrible. But, but I, don't, I don't like confronting people. Like if I don't know you, I, I, I don't, I know that sounds funny, but if I don't, I don't like it. And there was one time where I was in a Chick-fil-A with a friend of mine named Patrick, and I may have told this story before, but there's new people here, where I could hear this young lady who was sitting in the back booth with her boyfriend and another young man that worked there, and, and she was about the same age as Kimberly at the time, and there was just some things being said that, that ought not be said of another image bearer, even in jest, even if it was for other passionate purposes, but it, I'm telling you, it was like the Holy Spirit gave me like some sort of super hearing. It was as if I was sitting at the table with him. And Patrick's talking to me, and he can tell I'm really distracted. And I'm like, man, I, I, don't, I don't know what's happening right now, but I, I, can't, I can't stop hearing what's being said. I'm going to have to say something. And his eyes got really big. <laughs> because that can mean a lot of things from me, right? I'm going to have to say something. So in fear, as they walked by, I didn't. And my heart was about to rip out of my chest. And I thought, well, crisis averted. I think we're going to be okay. Nope. 
Holy Spirit sends that child back around and she's wiping down every table as if it were her own home and cleanliness was the highest good. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And I can't shake it. And I looked at Patrick and I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I turned to her and I said, I said, young lady, do you know who created you? And she was like, what? <laughs> it's a kind of a weird cold open. I need to work on my evangelism strategies. But <laughs> I said... I said, you, you, the, the God who created you would never want you to be talked to or about like that ever. Well, they were just kidding. I said, hear me. I'm old, I am old enough to be your dad. I have a daughter your age. They're not kidding if you're willing to go along. And you shouldn't be willing to go along. You were created for so much greater than that. The God of this universe loves you so deeply. And the, here's this weird thing happened. The sun comes through, and, and Patrick said, my face like lit up. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, it was the weirdest thing, dude. It was so powerful. And she, she actually went from being defensive, rightfully so, to she softened almost in sorrow. And she looked at me and she said, thank you. I have no idea where the story goes from there because I ran out of there before the cops could get there. <laughs> but again, I, I don't, that's not my thing, right? And, and there's part of me that was like, all right, is this the beginning? So I'm going to try this out some other place. And the Spirit was like, nah, no, nah, that's not your common thing. We're just going to do that once in a while to make you know I'm still here. Uh, but, uh, but for others of you, it's different, right? I mean, we, we have different ways. But, but having done that, taken that risk, it deepened my affection for our God. And, and so how, how much of my relationship with God or my understanding of God or my affection for God in Christ is being limited because I'm unwilling to take any risk at all because I'm so worried about what people think about me. I'm unwilling to wade into certain conversations that are hard in our culture right now. You know, the topics we're not supposed to talk about which is ridiculous to me. The, the topics that are affecting our country the most and we're not supposed to talk about them, affecting our lives, we, you don't want to talk about that. And so I want to grow. And, it, and I'm not going to grow without assurance. I'm not going to grow just going out and taking risks. Like we've got a picnic today. You won't see me like charging some of the other, you know, things saying, hey, you, I know you guys skipped church, but I'm about to preach it up real quick. Um, no, I'm not, I'm, I don't think that's the right call. Um, but there are ways in which we, we need to recognize that we may be robbing ourselves of seeing how good God can really be because we're unwilling to wade into some tough circumstances, reconciliation issues. We're unwilling to say hard words to people. We're unwilling to even say good words to people sometimes that could comfort them and be a blessing to them when they needed it the most. So what does Ephesians uh, 1, 11 through 14 teach us? What well, teaches us that God is worthy to be blessed because he has blessed us in Christ to serve his redemptive missional purpose in the world to the praise of his glory. We were saved for a reason. You were saved for a reason. And it's not some, I mean, maybe it's, it's to help redeem China or something, but chances are it's just to live out the glory of God in the everyday. It's to reach the point where you recognize, where you thought you had failed in raising your children and you actually recognize that they understand forgiveness because you've practiced it because you've failed so much and you needed to use the gospel. Not exactly the way you would have designed it, but exactly what was needed for them to know that God loves them and to practice that. 
And then we also are taught that with our salvation and inheritance in Christ sealed and it promised in the Holy Spirit that we can take risks for his glory. Peter T. O'Brien says this as as a summative of this passage. I think this is important as we're going to be transitioning into verse 15 next week to not forget this. And we won't because we're doing the confession, but hear this. He says, the theocentric, that just means God-centered, character of this passage, its Christological focus, just focused on Christ, particularly God's intention to bring all things together in Christ, its emphasis on divine grace and God's calling of a people to himself are all key issues for the letter as a whole. The eulogy of verses 3 through 14 has provided the keynote of the epistle, opened up, opened up many of its main ideas that recur in the body of the letter, set the style and tone, and provided an introduction for Paul's didactic and exhortatory goals. That just means that this verse, this 202-word run-on sentence, it is critical. So we got to keep coming back to it as we go through the letter so that we understand how it is that we are to grow in grace and peace. Amen? All right, well, let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then we have one more song, and then, uh, and then we've got a couple more things to go before we go to the picnic. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you are the beginning and the end. You are the alpha and the omega, that it is your will set even before the foundation of the world to redeem your people and invite us into this work. Would we taste and see that you are good based on the firm foundation that we have in Christ, abiding in Christ, sealed in the spirit? Help us to risk in a world that so desperately needs to know your love, to know your glory. Help us to risk what you have given to us um, but cannot be lost. Help us to remember that It's not anything that we will lose. It's kind of the parable of the talents. It's your money. And you've called us to risk it all to help the kingdom to grow. So would we be um, radical investors in the image of Christ? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.